0: You're listening to Hematopoiesis, a new podcast by the American Society of Hematology Trainee Council. In 2020, the ASH Trainee Council embarked on a mission to create a new online platform for hematology trainees that represents the entire diverse spectrum of budding hematologists from medical students to residents to fellows and doctoral students. With this new podcast, which is entirely curated and produced by the Ash Trainee Council, we hope to bring exciting educational and career-focused hematology content to you and the community of hematology trainees around the globe. I am Dr. Lachelle Weeks, former chair of the Trainee Council and hematology fellow at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. I am so glad to have you join me and my guests on this series of three podcast episodes, which will take us through the fascinating history of the most common medical procedure performed around the globe, blood transfusion. Our first episode in the series is entitled Blood Transfusion's Mystical Vitality. As a first-year fellow, I met a man with polycythemia vera a bone marrow disorder that causes overproduction of red blood cells. And this patient refused phlebotomy, a procedure often used to prevent complications in polycythemia vera, by removing blood from the body. His reasoning was simple. His blood, in his estimation, contained his chi, his life force, and the very essence of his existence. Why would he want to remove it? And this patient got me thinking about the ancestral reverence for the power of blood, blood as a mystical force a reverence that long predates our understanding of hematology and human physiology. The iron that makes our hemoglobin and causes our blood to run red is our connection to the celestial, sourced from stellar explosions or supernovas. And the idea that the blood has power to strengthen the recipient, this is an archetype that spans centuries and cultures. In the religions of ancient Egypt, the goddess Sekhmet is a lioness goddess of war, whose thirst for blood inspired victory in battle and fierce hunts. And she was also a goddess of healing, with members of the Sekhmet priesthood being among the world's first physicians. Aristotle, in around 320 BC, noted that all animals are endowed with a fluid whose lack, either natural or symptomatic, causes their deaths. And Hippocrates, in his early writing, describes blood as one of the four humors, standing alongside phlegm, choler, or yellow substance, and black bile as the key elements responsible for one's sickness or one's health. If we define transfusion in the most simple and etymological sense, using the Latin word transfusus, which means to transfer from one vessel to another by pouring, we find that some of the earliest documented transfusions, in the most literal sense, involved the drinking of blood. The most infamous story, which according to a number of historians is apocryphal, is 1490 in Rome when Pope Innocent VIII had a stroke and his doctors, as a curative measure, had him drink, or in some accounts he was transfused with, blood of three young healthy boys. This event, again, which has not been verified in Vatican records, is storied to have caused the death of the three boys and also failed to cure the Pope. Thankfully, the practice of drinking blood was not widely adopted. I spoke to Professor Douglas Starr, who was fascinated enough by the history of transfusion to write a book about it in 1998.
1: So my name is Douglas Starr. I'm Professor Emeritus of Science Journalism at Boston University. For 29 years, I was co-director of the Science Journalism graduate program there. In 1998, I came out with a book called Blood, an Epic History of Medicine and Commerce. As a writer, I'm constantly looking into new things. And one day, a friend from Colorado called me and said there was an interesting company trying to make artificial blood, and that it would have all sorts of advantages. And I started looking into that, and I wondered, well, I wonder what the market for blood is. And I found out that there is a market, and then I thought, I wonder what the history of blood is. And the more I looked into it, the bigger the story got, and that's usually a sure sign that it's time to start a book. (laughs) So I spent the next seven years gathering information, traveling in nine countries, and put together this book.
0: So, Professor Starr, what is it about blood that fascinated our ancestors?
1: That is a good question. As you know, the first of the three parts of my book is blood magic. The second part is blood wars, and the third part is blood commerce. I don't know how this all got started. You know, obviously, when you bleed, especially in the old days, you would bleed to death. So it was clearly very important. I think it may have been in some way related to women's menses. Obviously, there are biblical references in the Old Testament the escape from the Egyptians. But even before that, there was always a mystical thing about blood. And I think it's simply the fact that maybe it was one of the few real physical manifestations of good health or bad health.
0: Prior to the 1600s, the predominant understanding of circulation came from Greek physician Galen, who in the second century proposed that there were two kinds of blood carried by two different circulatory systems. In Galenic traditions, a red fluid moved through the heart and arteries, activating muscles and stimulating movement. And a nutritious fluid that encouraged growth was actually made in the liver and flowed through the body's blue-colored veins. And in fact, Galen believed that blood actually ebbed and flowed, meaning that there were two directions of blood flow in each of these circulatory systems. William Harvey, an anatomist who came on the scene in the 1600s, did vivisections, or live animal dissections, He also did experiments on men with tourniquets and essentially showed that veins had valves. And because of these valves, blood flowed in one direction rather than ebbing and flowing like the tides, which is what those in the Galenic tradition believed. He also showed that there was a single circulatory system for which the heart is central. And certainly, once circulatory physiology was visualized like this, any idea, reality or mythical, about drinking blood was certainly out, as intravenous transfusions were now conceivable. Transfusion was still centered in the mystical, and we had not yet appreciated the differences between species that made xenotransfusion, or transfusion from one animal to another, a dangerous enterprise. In 1668, a London anatomist by the name of George Acton reflected on transfusion, stating, It cannot be denied but that the blood of beasts, as well as men, is full of vital spirit and volatile salt. There cannot probably be so great dissimilarity between the vital spirit of the lamb and that of man, but that the first may easily be transmuted and assimilated into the latter. I spoke to Professor Starr about this as well. Right. And if if we think about some of the first recorded blood transfusions moving out of sort of Greek mythology and into, you know, people actually taking blood from one being and and putting it into another, a lot of those were not really to treat disease, but more to treat madness or to sort of transfer these metaphysical properties. And you talk a little bit about that in your your book as well.
1: I talk a lot about
0: it. A lot about that, yeah. The book opens
1: with the case of Jean-Claude Denis, the first doctor to really document the transfusion of blood from a gentle calf into a person. Mm -hmm. And that was a case where there was a madman running in the streets of Paris and a nobleman brought him in for treatment. Now, for years before that, doctors in France and in England had been experimenting transfusing blood from one animal to another, and they saw it wouldn't kill them. But this time he thought, well, let's, let's see if it could calm this guy down. Mm-hmm. And this comes back from something called vitalism, which was the Christian adoption of the Greek four humors, phlegm, collar, bile, and blood, and the notion that there's a balance. And vitalism took that a step farther, saying blood also contains the characteristics So the blood of a lion might be courageous and the blood of a lamb might be mild. So this doctor took the blood of a calf and transfused it into a madman. And the first time he did it, it actually seemed to work.
0: Right. And we know that that was probably more of a coincidence.
1: I think it was because he's having a hemolytic reaction and it was making too weak to be Making
0: him somnolent. Right. Denis unfortunately attempted a couple more Xena transfusions, and his last victim was a guy named Antoine Moroy, a man who was abusive towards his wife. The story has it that his wife brought him in for a transfusion to sort of chill him out. Denis tried a couple of transfusions on him, at least two, and possibly three. Following one of the transfusions using the blood of a calf, we get one of the first, if not the first, detailed description of a hemolytic transfusion event. Denis writes, As soon as the blood began to enter his veins, he felt the heat along his arm. His pulse rose presently, and soon after, we observed a plentiful sweat all over his face. He vomited violently, and his urine turned black like soot. Moroy died after the third attempt at transfusion, and upon investigation, it's not clear that this was a transfusion related event. Investigators eventually discovered vials of arsenic in his wife's possession. Denis and Perrine Moroy were both arrested, and Perrine was convicted of murdering her husband. Denis was cleared of all charges following the discovery of the arsenic, but he was disgraced, and for a while, with the dangers of transfusion being fully recognized, the practice was banned in France and other parts of Europe. It's interesting to me that even though the early history of therapeutic transfusions was fraught with death and sprinkled with scandal, the practice was able to catch on at all. So why do you think that blood transfusion caught on, even though it was such a high mortality practice?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. First of all, let's remember that after the Denis experiments, and again, the patient eventually died, but from other causes, Mm -hmm. blood was essentially abandoned for 150 years. Mm -hmm. And then I guess it was in the early 1800s, James Blundell started doing transfusions with people instead of animals. And you're right, the mortality rate was 50%. I think the fact that it worked at all was something. But meanwhile, there were a couple of very important developments aside from blood. One is that people started getting the hint that maybe bloodletting wasn't the best idea after all. And one of these reasons was there was a typhus epidemic in the 1830s. And unlike certain fevers, which send people into a delirium, typhus is debilitating. So when the doctors in Britain started bloodletting people with typhus, they only got worse. They got weaker and weaker and weaker. So one was there was a chink in the validity of bloodletting. And the other thing was a very quiet development, and that was the innovation of medical statistics. And until then, and this was pioneered in France, until then, the only records doctor kept were financial ones. Mm -hmm. And when they started keeping statistical records, they could actually see in their charts, geez, a lot of these people with bloodletting treatments died. So I think it was a combination of a bit of success with transfusion and acknowledged failure of bloodletting, which began a very slow, century-long turn. It mm-hmm. was a slow progress right. towards anatomical use of blood rather than the mystical use of it.
0: Right. James Blundell was an obstetrician in England in the early 1800s, and he was looking for a way to combat hemorrhage and shock, which were major complications and causes of maternal mortality and childbirth. Blundell started his research in transfusion by picking up on some of the science of xenotransfusion, but he quickly moved away from that after he did an experiment where he infused human blood into several dogs and they all died within five days of the procedure. He wrote in conclusion, the blood of one genus of an animal cannot in large quantities be substituted indifferently for the blood of another without occasioning the most fatal results. So Blundell took to -to human-to-human transfusions using husband's.
1: And oftentimes it would be the lady's coachman. And Mm -hmm. he mostly did with women who were bleeding out after giving birth. Mm -hmm. So the fact that somebody could do anything was considered quite a step.
0: Right. And Blundell was sort of at the intersection of a couple of innovations. He had his own findings that landed the field of transfusion medicine firmly in the realm of human-human transfusion. And he also took excellent records of his transfusion efforts, marking the increased use of medical statistics that Doug mentioned earlier. From 1818 to 1828, he recorded having attempted 10 transfusions in peripartum women. His notes indicated two women who died in the postpartum period remained dead despite transfusion. Three women who were actively hemorrhaging in the postpartum period died despite transfusion. But five women who were actively hemorrhaging and transfused survived. And a 50% survival rate for postpartum hemorrhage in 1818 seemed quite good. His last innovation, which is probably one of the ones he's most famous for, was the creation of blood transfusion devices. And James Blundell, he created the impalator, which is, <laughs> if we were to show it to people now, well, they would be like, don't bring that thing near me.
1: <laughs> I love the instruments. And for blood lading, the scarificator, the, right. flaking, the Yeah, they were they doing their fighting. best, you know?
0: Absolutely. To get a better sense of some of the instruments, including the Blundell-style impeller, I caught up with Dr. Sunny Zeke, co-director of the Blood Transfusion Service at the Massachusetts General Hospital, and also quite the collector of early transfusion devices.
2: This is Sonny Zeke. I'm the co-director of the Blood Transfusion Service at the Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. I'm a hematologist, and I have the pleasure to present to you today a little bit of conversation regarding some of the devices that advance transfusion medicine. I'm very privileged to own something that is of the same style that Blundell himself would have used in the early part, uh, the early decades of the 19th century Blundell published in a landmark paper in the Lancet on a Saturday in 1828, a four-page paper, which is of great historical importance called Observations on the Transfusion of Blood. And in it, he really gives really a summary of what had been 10 years of preclinical and clinical work devoted to trying to provide transfusions to women with postpartum hemorrhage. And Blundell discovered, you know, that crossing species was not a good idea. So he laid the foundation of human-to-human transfusion, He also recognized that you didn't have to give back as much as was lost in order to rescue someone from hemorrhagic shock, a very important finding. But he also recognized that there were two main obstacles confronting the transfusionists of the time. One was that the blood would clot between the donor and the recipient. And the second, of course, was the problem of air embolism. And so he set out to create devices. He was very device-oriented and was a wealthy man with good contacts in London. So he set out to work with instrument makers to create devices that would be more successful at transfusion. And I happen to have one of these, and it would be quite recognizable today. It's a brass syringe with about 50 ml volume to it. It has a glass nozzle at the top, which is kind of like a funnel, and the donor would have his antecubital vein nicked, and the blood would basically run down and drip off his elbow and accumulate in this funnel. When there was a significant volume of blood available, the operator would pull back the back of the syringe to draw the blood from the funnel into the barrel, and then Blundell devised this clever little hand valve so that while you were holding the syringe in one hand, you could squeeze this valve. And the valve actually then opened up the flow of the syringe to the recipient, and so you would pull back the plunger to draw the blood into the syringe and then squeeze the valve and then simply advance the plunger to shoot the blood into the patient. And so this really, because of this kind of one-handed valve and the kind of the alacrity with which you could operate this, he was able to move the blood quickly before it would clot. And because of the really the fine manufacture of it, it's an airtight device, he could overcome the problem of air emboli. So this was, in fact, a design that lasted throughout the 19th century. The one I have, I doubt, was used by James himself because these remained popular throughout the 19th century and were used for, you know, another 80 years after he brought them to light.
0: There were few copycats and improvement on the Blundell-style devices over the years. Samuel Lane, a British surgeon, shortened the funnel to reduce coagulation and he's also accredited with providing one of the first recorded descriptions of transfusion for someone with presumed hemophilia. A young boy by the name of George Furman had significant bleeding history, which included, quote, an affliction of the knee joint, unquote. This is thought to be a reference to hemarthrosis. George had a surgery for a, quote, squinting deformity of the eye, unquote. And though he walked home after the procedure, he came back days later with faint pulses, weakness, and a wound that wouldn't stop bleeding. Lane transfused the blood of a, quote, stout, healthy young woman, unquote. By his own description, he sliced her arm and allowed her to bleed directly into the funnel of the Blundell-style device. He then injected the blood into the boy who was saved by this transfusion. So thanks to Blundell, we had moved away from animal to human transfusions, and we now had devices that helped to reduce some of the risk.
2: One will we'll remember, of course, that the blood types had not been discovered yet. And so despite overcoming the issues of coagulation and emboli, there was still the formidable obstacle of blood types that made transfusion a very risky affair throughout the entire 19th century.
0: And that's exactly what we'll talk about in our next episode. I'd like to thank our guests, Professor Doug Starr and Dr. Sunny Zeke, for their insights. And I thank you all for listening. Join us next time for Episode 2, Blood Transfusion, a Life-Saving Practice in a Time of War, where Professor Starr, Dr. Zeke, and representatives from the American Red Cross will carry us through the major innovations in blood transfusion that were brought about by the war efforts of the 20th century.